Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host, and I am here in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, where we have our studios. Outside, it is raining in Washington. Not too far away, eating toast, I'm told, is Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. Is your mouth Everybody full? Everybody should eat toast, David. Well, actually, toast is good. actually, my keto dieting wife would say no, because toast is a carb. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. She's, I'm on the all-carb diet. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good thing. Out in sunny California, where no one eats carbs, is Jeffrey Lewis, who is the author of a new book called The 2020 Commission Report on the North Korean Nuclear Tax Against the United States, um, which is a long and very... Um, official sounding title for something that is a real page turner and will cause you to lose immense amounts of sleep. Uh, welcome, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure to be here. It is actually very sunny here today. Thanks for adding that. Um, we're we're just getting the 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 sort of residual hurricane here. So. Um, I think if we're going to talk about something so dark, I, I want you to know that at least on my end, it's very sunny. Yeah, well, I noticed. So the I bad follow- news is that World War Three is coming. The good news is that it is sunny in California. Yeah, well, I also noticed from following Jeff's Twitter feed that it often features cocktails. And it's it's kind of like, you know, you're out there, you're sort of in the sun, you're on the beach you're living the life, and yet you're thinking very dark thoughts. Is this a was this a problem in your childhood? Where where does this come from? It was almost certainly a problem in my childhood. Isn't that the explanation for all of our various dysfunctions? But you know, cocktail making is my hobby. That is what I like to do to de-stress. It's go to the beach and shake a cocktail. So you know, think a dark thought, write a dark thing, and then you know, like knock myself out with a Manhattan. But have you have you invented new like cocktails that sort of tie into the themes of your book? A, a Kim Jong Un cocktail, a nuclear sunset cocktail, something like that. Uh, I actually have colleagues who like doing that. I I am pretty traditional. I guess I pretend my Manhattans are the Manhattan Project. Um, now, oh, jeez. Yeah, I know it's a terrible pun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But, but yeah, you know, I, I like to I like to fool around with the classics kind of at the margins using local California ingredients. You know, we have Meyer lemons, which are really uh, a glorious thing. Uh, well, that's that's encouraging to hear from. Now, I have to say, speaking of, of of lemons, your book is not actually turned out to be one. The response to it has been terrific. I know Rosa was like perusing some of the blurbs. Rosa, do you have them? I was. Yes. No. And I and and I our readers need to read this book. I'm going to here are a few of the things people have said about it. 
about Jeff's book. Slate says it's disturbingly plausible with painstaking detail and bleak humor. And, and they didn't add lots of cocktails, but they should have. The Daily Beast calls it astonishing. It deftly intertwines real-world reports with a fictional narrative that extends some of the president's worst flaws to logical conclusions. Um, sort of like um, World War Z, except North Korea and with no zombies, is what I'm thinking. Um, very effective, deeply affecting, says the Weekly Standard, and so on. I could keep going because because there are uh, dozens of, of uh, reviews of this book saying things like, you have to read it even though it has no zombies. So... <laughs> yeah, right. That we should get Dan Dresner on here, who's obsessed with zombies. But um, Jeff, did you get any bad reviews? Do you want to share any of those with us? Um, you know, I get a, a fair number of one star reviews on Amazon from people who are really offended that I didn't show President Trump the respect he was due as I depict him starting a nuclear war for no good reason. Wow. Yeah, wow. I have no idea what would make you inclined to do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, uh, go funny on. Thing, well, the funny thing about that is that I actually don't think the book's all that unkind to President Trump, given the actual things he's done. You know, he's not really treated as a, a malign force. He's more like a force of nature. And at least for me, you know, the kind of nobody really is a villain. It's just that people are so busy managing Trump uh, that they don't get around to managing the crisis that uh, pulls us all under. Well, that's, you know, a kind of a scary scenario. What I've noticed is that, you know, the way your book, the the, the predicate of your well, why don't, why don't, before I sort of recapitulate the predicate, why don't you give the 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 listeners out there in deep state nerdland just a little bit of a an overview of the background of the 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 scene setting for the book. Right. So it's an epistolary novel, which is to say it purports to be a government document looking back at the nuclear war of 2020. Um, sometimes people complain that it's not really written like a government report. And all I can say to that is you're welcome. Um, you know, it's a it's a pretense, but it really is a pretense to look at the way in which even if you know the ending is a nuclear war, the way in which it happens um, is kind of the drama. So how is it that people make one mistake after another? Uh, and so really, you know, I'd say two thirds of the book is about the mistakes that lead up to the war. Um, and then there are uh, a couple of chapters toward the end where where you actually have the fighting taking place. But it's not really it's not really about the the effects of the apocalypse, although although there's some of that. It's it's really about the choices um, that people make that get us there. Well, and, and and a lot of those choices, to be honest, are choices people were making long before Trump arrived on the scene, right? Yeah, this is why I think it's interesting that people get really worked up about the depiction of. Trump, because I, I thought that people would actually be more offended by the fact that the undercurrent of the book is that there are these decision making pathologies that don't really have anything to do uh, with Trump, um, that there are things that we think and things that we do and things that we have done um, that, that are much older than that. And, and so that this is kind of a risk that we we run on a day to day basis, even when you have someone in office who's fit. Um, and it just becomes a more interesting story when you have someone in office who's not. More, more it's a more interesting story. Yeah, it is some bleak humor. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but I mean, I enjoyed, I enjoyed writing certain Trump scenes. I will admit. 
You don't want well, to spoil. You know, I, I love apocalypse stories, and and I I think actually that this kind of fiction is incredibly important because when people think it's nonfiction, they get bored and they tune out. But but fiction can be just so much more gripping, it, it, and and I think that pushing us to contemplate possible but still avoidable futures uh, is incredibly important. Yeah, I you know one of the big challenges I always find in my nonfiction writing is when one talks about how a nuclear war starts, that's like a profoundly unreasonable outcome. And it's really hard to reason people along the path that leads to an unreasonable outcome. It's way easier to show it uh, by presenting characters who have all the kinds of, you know, flaws that we associate with normal human beings. Um, Yeah. Are there normal human beings in your book? I think so. I mean, you know, when I turned in the draft um, of one of the chapters where uh, the chief of staff character, who's a kind of generally I use real people's name, but in this case, there's a fictionalized John Kelly because I just wasn't sure John Kelly wasn't going to get fired before the book came out. Um, you know, my my editor was shocked at how sympathetic he thought my my portrayal of of, of the Kelly character was. Um, and I actually didn't think it was that sympathetic, um, but it wasn't, you know, I guess I didn't make his flaws that he's evil. Uh, I made his flaws that he's too focused on managing the president and and not focused enough on on managing the business of the country. Hmm. Well, that's that's it. Sounds eminently eminently plausible. Um, well, I want you to be able to talk yourself into the decisions they make. Like I, I kind of the tension that I really enjoyed as a as a writer is you write yourself into a decision where uh, they make some terrible judgment, but you kind of convince yourself like, no, no, this is this is a good judgment. This will work out OK. And then, you know, you kind of step back for a second and you're like, oh, no, actually, it's not going to work out OK. You know, so I wanted there to be that tension. I didn't want it to be just. Well, I think, I think that's a really stuff. powerful point, though, that, that the the most horrific uh, pathways humanity has gone down rarely come about because of one uh, clearly mistaken decision. It's, it's instead, it's the series of incremental decisions, no single one of which seems any more outrageous or crazy than the last, you know, and it's, it's the, it's a cumulative impact of the, the, the hundreds tiny decisions that gets you to horrific stuff uh, much more often than it is the single catastrophic decision. Well, also you've been you've been in the government, Rosa. Although, you know, you, we'll nobody. If, oh, go on. Go, go go on, Jeff. Oh no, I was going to say you you. I'm eager to see if you if you think that if you think I pulled that off. But but David, your question's a good one. Well, no, no, I just you, no one in the government sits in a room and says let's make a bad decision, or you know, I mean, there's nobody in the corner, you know, twiddling his mustache, going blah ha ha, you know, Twitter Twitter memes notwithstanding. You know, Rosa, you've been in the government, and I bet you've been involved in some bad decisions unintentionally. <laughs> Never. <laughs> of course not. I, I only make good decisions, David. <laughs> I have, I have uh, exceptional judgment. <laughs> no, I, I think that's of course, yeah. And, and um, you know, another really good book on this um, is, uh, although although this is someone who's actually an example in both directions, maybe, is Samantha Power's book, The Problem uh, Problem from Hell, uh, on genocide. And 
you know, talking about how uh, a series of U.S. government acts and omissions um, end up with the U.S. kind of standing aside while, you know, horrific genocide occurs in Rwanda, for instance. And, and you know, I think that's one of the the points of her book, too, is that you can have a government that is filled with all these people who are who are nice people, smart people, thoughtful people who want to do the right thing, um, and yet a combination of uh, the sort of st- structural incentives of of governance um, um, and diffusion of responsibility and so on can can mean that even though everybody spends an enormous amount of their time wringing their hands in important meetings about about these issues, um, you end up with with a sort of catastrophically awful policy um, that no one quite knows how you got to. You know, because nobody, nobody, nobody ever said, let's have a catastrophically awful policy. Um, oh, my God, I'm looking out my window and there's a squirrel the size of a raccoon on my deck. This is kind of alarming. Sorry, guys. I got wow. definitely distracted. Its <laughs> the, tail is bigger than most cats. Did, did you see what goes on here? Like, we could talk about the specter of nuclear war, but if, if an outsized squirrel, squirrel appears on your porch, that all of a sudden becomes... I'm, the, I'm easily distracted. It's, oh, and it's got something in its mouth. What does it have? I, yeah. I think it may be eating some kind of... Uh, yeah. Eating a dog or something. Your next, door, your next door neighbor. But no, no, but, you know, we get sort of caught in these traps. And as you're telling that story, Rosa, one of the things that re- reminds me of it is when Samantha Power's book came out, for some reason, I was sent a galley of the book. And at the time, I had a little company that did sort of advisory, sort of futures work. And in one, the office next to mine was a guy who had been the U.S. National Security Advisor at the time of all this, Tony Lake. And then two doors down had been somebody who had worked for him at the time, who later became National Security Advisor, Susan Rice. Um, and then another door down was Gail Smith, who later became the head of USAID. And Gail and Susan had worked on Africa policy. And when they heard that this manuscript had gotten there, each one of them successively sort of came into my office and said, could I borrow this for a second? And they went down and they read about this description of what... <laughs> See if they were mentioned. <laughs> right. You know, but they went down and, you know, to to, to and to, to read about what went wrong about Rwanda. And of course, all of them were mentioned and and, and it was a, a very bleak scene. But what's particularly striking about this and what sort of brings me back to Jeff and the premise of his book is that they went, they, they lived through Rwanda trying to do the best thing. It turned out catastrophically. Books came out saying that this was catastrophic mistake. They said, oh, my God, this is unfortunate that there's a book writing these things about us, and we feel bad about that. We'll never let this happen again. And Bill Clinton and Tony Lake and others said, we'll never let this happen again. And as Susan Rice was national security advisor, it happened again in Syria. You know, the, the, the same thing happened over again. Um, and so, the, you know, I guess... And, and, and starring, starring Samantha Power. Well, Samantha Power had a big role in it as well. And, 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 you know, so Jeff, I just wonder if some of these things aren't traps of history. You know, oh, some, I, uh, some of these yeah. themes aren't things where you can do your best, but there are other forces. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, when I was writing the book, I, one of the things I liked about fiction was it's a little less judgy. Um, 
you know, it turns out, and one of the things I did not like about living in D.C. is it's really hard to have a, a discussion with people about, like, how they screwed things up. Because, uh, like, nobody likes to have that discussion. Like, you know, and, and you know, these are hard jobs. Yeah, well, you do. But, but, like, these are hard, right, problems. And, and, and I think in a lot of cases, people have – they don't have – all the information that that they would need and then you know you don't have hindsight and you know i think it's easy to let a little self-interest slip in here and there and and if you say that in a non-fiction setting it just really comes off i think as condemning a person and i think in a fictional setting where you're telling the story you know the reader can empathize with the character that's making the mistake so that you can talk about the mistake without it being a condemnation of that particular human being. And, and so I kind of like that. I mean, it's a, it's a related theme, but like, I'm really interested in this theme of like, what's the difference between serving in this administration while trying to hold things together What's the line between that and enabling the president? And I find it's really hard to have that conversation with people. It's a lot easier to explore it in fiction. Well, uh, and, I, and I think that the, uh, you know, looking back at books like Samantha's um, Problem from Hell and, you know, one of the things it highlights is that is that even in an administration where the president is not crazy, you know, Bill Clinton, whatever you may say about him, he was not nuts. He was an intelligent man. He was extremely engaged in challenges of governance. He, you know, that, that even in an administration like that, where you would think there would be plenty of freedom to, to dissent, to raise opposing views, that, that there are all kinds of reasons that, you know, as, as, as you dissect, for instance, the decision-making that led to U.S. essentially doing nothing as the Rwandan genocide unfolds, you know, there are all these moments where you, you know, you, you look at it in hindsight and you think, why didn't that person protest? Why didn't they resign? Why didn't they speak out more loudly? You know, and, and essentially it's a story in which very few people speak out loudly or resign. Um, and even though in hindsight, many people say, including President Clinton himself, say, this was terrible. We failed, um, you know, but but the, those failures can be invisible while they're happening. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think it does shed some light on some of the reasons that that now, even as we have a president who I think to to many of us seems so clearly unfit, you know, and whose decision making is so erratic and dangerous that it's so hard for people to leave uh, or even speak out internally. Yeah, well, that's that was a theme I wanted to pick up in the book because, you know, I don't I think I'll, I do think a lot of people are enabling this rather than actually doing the right thing. But I don't think it's all that easy to see when you're in it, you know, and, and it was kind of fun to explore that. You know, one of the I, I know you haven't had a chance to read it, but it's early on the book, so it's not too much of a spoiler. But, you know, the thing that triggers the crisis is not a decision by the Trump administration to get super tough with the North Koreans. It's it's kind of the opposite, which is that there are people in the Trump administration who want to get really tough with the North Koreans. And the people who don't want to do the, the bloody nose come up with a half measure. And their thinking is that the half measure is not nearly as provocative as all the other things that are being proposed. And so they think that they're de-escalating it. 
But of course, it doesn't look that way to the North Koreans because they don't see the thing we didn't do. Right. They only see the thing we do do. Um, and I, you know, I when I wrote that, I actually was very sympathetic to the people who I have making the worst possible mistake. Like I felt like in their position, I would do exactly the same thing. And it's only I think when you have hindsight and and perspective that you can like be like, oh, that's what I should have done. You know, it's it's not that easy. Well, it's not. And, you know, Rosa, as you look at as, as we look at the situation here, um, I don't know if you saw David Sanger's piece in The New York Times today. I did. Um, but talking about North Korea and how, you know, I mean, essentially the the predicate of Jeff's book is unfolding as as it unfolded in the book. Um, the, 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 the reality is that the president thought he did something with regard to North Korea, made a big hoopla about it. And behind the scenes, the North Koreans were like, yeah, well, whatever, but we're going to keep building the nuclear weapons and they get closer and closer. Well, they, they build and build upon their capability, bringing us closer and closer to a situation like that, um, where your, your, your book achieves a, a climax um, Jeff. Um, and, you know, Rosa, as you look at it, um, the, the, the question is now at this particular point, you know, we're distracted by so much else in the U.S. It seems like this North Korea situation it ought, ought to be commanding a little more of our bandwidth. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that that's one of the many dangers of of this moment in in American politics is that we're all so distracted by by these sort of sideshows of the latest Trump craziness or who's going to go to jail, <laughs> all of them probably, um, et cetera. You know, and that stuff is it's not that that's trivial. It's just that meanwhile, you know, the world continues to spin, you know, and other people who are less paralyzed by what is going on in Washington, D.C., uh, continue to do the things that they want to do. And sometimes those, you know, then it, it, it just it, it increases the likelihood I, of stumbling into catastrophe. And I'm, I'm as, as our listeners know, I'm I'm always uh I'm always focusing on the, the many routes to catastrophe, uh, which we usually stumble into. We rarely, we rarely say, "Hey, let's have a catastrophe." It's usually a series of small decisions and a series of accidents. And our collective inattention uh, to North Korea, to what's going on in Iran, to China, to, to numerous other issues going on today, you know, greatly increases the likelihood that we end up with something very, very bad. Well, you know, that gives me an idea, Rosa. Why don't you do something for our new website, which is going to go up a little bit later this week when you have a sense, when you have a chance and do Rosa Brooks's apocalyptic reading list. Well, you know, ten, I can do that. I ten, can do that, David. <laughs> ten, and, 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 ten books, including Jeff's and, and Samantha Bauer's book that really capture the spirit of despair that has brought you to where you are. Well, in another book I recommend, and Jeff, I don't know if you read this at any point while you were putting your own together, uh, is uh, the book The The American War by Omar Al-Akkad, um, which is, uh, takes as its premise that this particularly divisive political moment does lead to a, a complete fracture and a civil war within the United States, uh, essentially between you know the uh, coastal 
urban elites and the uh, rural South of the United States. And, and it's a similar kind of book in certain ways uh, in terms of its narrative technique. Um, uh, and it's also very, very chilling. So I would add that to the list. Um, I, I also, David, at one point I was trying to pitch various people I knew on, on producing a series of short videos called World War III in Three Minutes. Uh, and I, my, my idea, and Jeff, Jeff can star in the first World War II three minutes video, is to do really short videos on three minute videos on the various potential pathways to global catastrophe. And this is this is surely one of them. That's sold. I'm just looking over at the back of Ian's head going, this is something we have to produce here at the Deep State Radio Network. We've got video cameras. World War III in three minutes. We've got Ian. We could do World War Three in three minutes. Jeff, you come back and do one of those, right? You know, because Oh, absolutely. This, in fact, with a couple cocktails, I suspect you could do, I was gonna say, do I'll all make of them. Cocktails while we watch the end of the world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or we could just say World War Three in three minutes, and then we go. And now for the appropriate cocktail for this particular apocalypse. <laughs> I was thinking I was inspired to this. I don't know. Uh, I don't know whether either of you have um, had children of the right age to uh, uh, ever watch the brilliant and weird uh, YouTube musical video Harry Potter in ninety nine seconds. Um, in which this rather strange but brilliant uh, college student at the University of Texas um, sings a very silly a cappella song in which in 99 seconds he, he to the to the melody of the Harry Potter theme music, he summarizes all of Harry Potter. And I thought, well, if he can do Harry Potter all eight volumes in 99 seconds, we can do World War Three in three minutes. Yes, we can. <laughs> and we sh- and, and, and we should do that. Um, d- Jeff. If 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 you were, you know, taking your book and sort of using it as a guide, um, stories like David Sanger's in today's uh, New York Times suggest we're on track. What are the next couple of things you look for over the next six months or a year that get us to what is the deadline? March twenty first, twenty twenty. Is that when your World War takes place? Yeah, I mean, that's your right. Nuclear war. Three 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 twenty one. Three two one. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, good. Um, so when you get to three, two, one, twenty, twenty, um, you know, the, the, between here and there, what you know, what is what is you know the the next thing? Not from your book, but that we should look for. Is it Trump? You know, sort of heading towards impeachment? Is it something that you know the North Koreans do? I know you have an extraneous plot twist that actually kind of. Not a, you know, but that sparks the war, you know, some sort of Deus ex machina thing. But but how? What 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 else do we need to do to get us to the precipice? So I think the big dynamic right now, um, and you know, the thing that uh, that I think David Sanger mentioned in his piece, and and that I've been saying for a while, is that you know what the North Koreans are really looking for is this kind of Israel-like deal, which is they stop like brandishing the weapons, they don't do the parades, they don't do tests, but they get to keep them. It's not what the president's promising. And so for me, the moment at which this process stops being viable is the moment in which President Trump feels like it is clear that the elimination of North Korea's nuclear weapons is not a thing that's going to happen. And and so for me, what what really sets the the book, I mean, it's yes, there's the event, but what lays the groundwork for that is that President Trump decides that 
that he's he's being taken advantage of, that he's the one who looks weak, that he is embarrassed um, and he decides to ratchet up the pressure. And then that kind of takes all of this, you know, happy language about what a great relationship they have and puts it back on the, the track of 2017. So, you know, I don't know if that's an external shock like, you know, we're where where I am, we look at satellite images all the time and we see, all you know, the factories still producing missiles. Um, so I don't know if it's something like that um, or or if it's some kind of, you know, more personal thing, um, you know, like the North Koreans just offending Trump. But that moment that Trump feels like he looks the fool, that's the part where I think it gets really dangerous. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. You know, Rosa, as he was talking, I was thinking what the North Koreans really need in order to get an Israel deal is a sufficient amount of evangelical support. And if they could get somebody to suggest that North Korea played a role in Armageddon and the second coming. Right. And that there's actually an Old Testament prophecy, which, if properly interpreted, would make that clear. That then they would get to keep the nukes because the totally evangelicals would. would say, we need this in order for all of us to go up to heaven together. What do you think, Jack? I, I think that there's a whole uh, other novel in this, David. Yeah, that's a that's a kind of a, the Dan Brown or whatever. Like, yeah, like the North Korea prophecy. Yeah. Come on, Jeff. Somebody's going to dig up a bunch what, of what, ancient, what's... ancient papyrus scrolls <laughs> in, in, in the Temple Mount that are going I, to make it. I want to sell as many books as Dan Brown. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just you need a you need a series. You need, you need a, a comp- series. You need a series. Is is somebody going to make your book into like a movie, Jeff? I mean, you, you know, gonna... we're trying to we're trying, but the interesting thing is, even though I really wrote it in a way that I thought would kind of lend itself to like a like a like a Walking Dead kind of of series where characters <laughs> come in and out. Um, turns out the studios are very afraid of anything involving North Korea because they're they're afraid they're going to get hacked like Sony. <laughs> Quite right too. Well, I, don't say that. No, we're supposed we're supposed okay. to be reassuring that they can go ahead and purchase right, the property. Right. No, 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 that's, it's right. weird because it would you be know worth it. It would be worth being hacked. You know, but I, Jeff, I, the weird thing was that I kind of had this image of. You know, a uh, professor in Monterey making cocktails on the beach who becomes the hero of this, oh, no. played no, played no. by played by James Franco. <laughs> you know, the problem is that this was actually this was the thing I was most frightened about is all of us who are academics. I shouldn't say all, but the vast majority. I think we all think we have a novel in us. And nine times out of ten, that problem is the protagonist is is the novelist, and it it. I maybe maybe some people have the talent to pull that off. I I don't. You will never see me starring in in my own novel. No well, way. I think that's okay. You know, I I think I've told Rosa this story, and I'm not going to name the person who's involved in the story. But one of the most prominent academics of all the academics in the general field, let's say, of foreign policy, wrote a novel in which there were sex scenes. And it really made ew 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 exactly, and it really made a lot of people incredibly uncomfortable because, of course, they started visualizing, and 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 that's another reason not to make yourself the protagonist 
Um, yeah, yeah, I don't need to depict myself as, uh, you know, Carmel Valley's number one lover man. That's just, no. It's, no. no, well, not in this one. <laughs> Not in this one, but in the longer series, maybe maybe you do. There's not a lot of sort of hot North Korean sex scenes in this book, really. Is nope. Art. No. Um, yeah, to get well, turned on by this book, you'd have to be pretty sick. Well, can happen. You know, look at look at look at who's look at look at who's the, who's the president of the United States. Um, you know, speaking of which, I mean, he ends up. You know, it, the 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 notion that him being played, you know, made to look foolish would trigger a war is very unnerving because it seems to be happening every day now. Um, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, the good news, bad news of this whole situation is, I mean, the reason I think we went from the rhetoric of last year to the much better rhetoric of this year is that, you know, the president is vain and he's susceptible to flattery and he wants to be seen as successful. And so he looks, I think, at international diplomacy as a thing that like changes uh, his 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 news cycle. And, and you know, the North Koreans seem to have figured that out. I mean, I don't know if you see the flattering things the North Koreans say about Trump, but I mean, they have really figured out that they can, um, especially Kim Jong-chol, who is a uh, uh, who is a kind of a famous jerk. You know, he like waved his cell phone in Mike Pompeo's face when he disagreed with something Pompeo said and said, why don't you call your president? Like, I think the North Koreans have figured that out. And so I think they will keep buttering him up and flattering him. But damn, that is a terrifying thing to base our security on is the flattery of a, a vain man in, in cognitive decline. Although the North Koreans do have an aptitude for flattering overstatement i mean they have a lot of practice oh yeah i mean you know there's kim you know the you know the flower kim jong-ilia i'm hoping that they will they will like give you know donald trump his own plant and you know just give him that the full battery of north korean uh love you know like he'll he'll go to pyongyang they'll all hold up the little cards and we'll make a picture of his face with a little thumbs up it's what we got to do to live rosa this if it takes this a flower named after the president, a parade for the president. It's, it's just the price we have to pay for world peace. And <laughs> yeah, but are you willing to go through that? Are you willing to tolerate? <laughs> is it worth? Is one. world is world peace <laughs> really worth that? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, if you had to choose, it's kind of it would be so it would be so nauseating. Um to 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 you know listen to this on the on the other hand maybe that's the military parade he always wanted you know <laughs> well right? indeed and it would be very fitting if the military parade he finally gets is in in pyongyang uh it, yeah well he, he may take a permanent permanent residence there um i mean you laugh but like this is a man who insists on two scoops of ice cream yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, he's a child. He's a child. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. no, that's that's true. Let me ask you, Jeff, if from the very serious community, you know, you you you, the community in which you operate is 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 full of very serious, dour people, and uh, you know, for a long time, uh, you know, the the prominent journal in this area has had like a doomsday clock that's been a couple of minutes before midnight, and and so forth. Um, 
how do they react to your sort of, you know, turning this all into a more kind of, not lighter narrative, but a kind of more popular narrative? Uh, you know, it's been a pretty good response so far, you know, and I think that that's because, um, you know, it's it's not a secret, but the in the later chapters, when I actually describe the effects of nuclear weapons, um, you know, that stuff is handled very seriously. Um, and the bleak humor that is in the other chapters is not there. And and those are actually um, survivor accounts from Hiroshima, where I go every year. Uh, and so... You know the. This is is this, this is what you do for vacation every year, Jeff. You, you uh, go to Hiroshima. It's contemplate. funny you say this. Actually, <laughs> it is one of my favorite cities on earth. I, yeah. So every year, uh, I go. I'm on the governor of Hiroshima's roundtable on disarmament, and in addition to you know the serious stuff, which is very serious, um, Hiroshima is a lovely place. It's got my favorite bar in the world, uh, which I won't name for fear of ruining it, uh, and it's got uh, you know I go to a baseball game, and it's just a lovely, vibrant place. And, you know, you kind of got to live with these two realities, both the, the, you know, happiness of the place as it is now. Um, and you know, the, the idea that, you know, this terrible thing happened. So, you know, I think if I had been flip, um, I, or disrespectful about the survivor testimonies, then I think people would be angry at me and rightly so. Um, but generally my goal was to actually try to get people to engage with that literature. Uh, and I think, generally, since people don't like to engage with it because it's like not, I mean, it's not fun, right? It's a downer. I mean, I, you know, I cry once every time I go. Um, I think most people see it as at least the people I've talked to have, have said that, you know, they appreciated trying to get people to engage um, with the stories of, of what really did happen. Well, I think that's what really does actually engage people in this regard. You know, Rosa, when you make your apocalyptic apocalypse reading list, um, one of the books that surely belongs on it next to Jeff's is is John Hersey's book Hiroshima um, which tells the story of what happened in Hiroshima through a number of the survivors was probably the bet you know the New Yorker article that it came out of it has to be in one of the 10 best pieces of magazine journalism that that ever was since magazines seem to be ending right about now. So we can, we can, we can now look back on what magazines were. Um, but it's, it's the fat, it's the human stories because everything else seems so out of scale. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, and, and I think that goes back to uh, Jeff's earlier comments um, on the, the value of fiction, uh, you know, or, or, or to frame it a little bit differently, there's the, the famous uh, remark attributed to Joseph Stalin to the effect that uh, uh, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. Um, I think it's, it's hard for people to process in the abstract uh, a lot of information about all the various terrible things that could happen, even when the information is completely accurate. Um, but, but people, we, we, we're, we're, we're social creatures and we're wired to listen to stories and to remember stories. They're much more powerful than, than, you know, there's a big difference between a story and information. Information does nothing for us. Stories, stories move us and we remember them. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and I think we're wired to learn from stories. That's just the way our brains work. We sat around the fire and we, that's how we were taught about how the world works. Um, well, you know, my sense is that everybody out there 
uh, who hasn't gotten the 2020 commission report um, ought to. Uh, I think it's a, it's an extraordinary book and extraordinary commentary on our time. And unfortunately, uh, even in the brief time since it's been published, uh, it's proven to be um, prescient and uh, uh, sort of describes the world as it is unfolding. Uh, and so, you know, it's just the kind of thing that all of those deep state radio nerds who are out there, I, I think, would find interesting. You know, we have our own deep state radio book club. I don't know if you you know that, Jeff, but no. uh, this 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 cropped up um, a few weeks back when we did a, an episode on things we were reading and it's growing and and it's quite active. Um, and so perhaps they will also put this on their on their list. Um, we'll try. We're gonna we're about to launch a, a, a website. It's actually going to come out later this week. And as websites go, it's going to look kind of humble, but it's going to have our podcasts and transcripts, and it's going to have some new kind of content, and it's going to have some newsletters we're going to put out on a regular basis, and some blog commentary, and the, it'll track people on Twitter and other kinds of blogs. Uh, but one of the things I'd like it to do is 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 to include you know, the ability to to buy books like that we mentioned on the show, including this one. And so we'll make sure that it's got that um, that ability there. And by the way, folks, it, it's, it's going to happen a little later this week. Uh, if you want information on it or you want information on some of, you know, what's coming ahead on it, uh, all you got to do is go to www.deepstateradionetwork.com, uh, sign up, and we'll uh, keep information coming to you. Uh, part of what we're doing, you know, let's be honest about this, is that we've been operating for a year and a quarter now, growing every single week, and and we're really thrilled by the growth. Um, but we've never had an ad. We've never asked anybody for any money. We've been doing this kind of out of pocket. And so as we try to build the community, our hope is that some folks in the community will pitch in and say, yeah, I'd like some content that's unique to being a member here. I'd like a newsletter. I'd like some blogs. I'd like some you know, interactive podcasts. I'd like to go to live events. I'd like to, you know, get a free mug or something like that. And, and, and so, you know, I'm willing to contribute a little bit in order to get that, but also to help deep state radio grow. Cause we don't think there's anything really like us out there. We're, uh, for different kind of voices, for a different kind of conversation about this. And one of the things that you'll see us doing more and more over the year as people respond to this is creating platforms for new voices who you don't find in other kinds of publications um, that provide inside perspectives, but also emerging generation perspectives, diverse perspectives, um, you know, not not your father or mother's national security or foreign policy publication, but something that's completely new. And a lot of it's going to be audio and video, which is going to also distinguish us from other people. So please go to that. Uh, there'll be some follow on on this conversation with Jeff there. Um, and there'll be the opportunity to buy some books and there'll be the opportunity to give us a little bit of support. Uh, probably, you know, a latte a month would do us very well if you skip the latte and help us out. And uh, in the meantime, you know, later this week, we'll be back with another podcast. And thank you to Rosa for joining us for this one. And thank you to Jeff and everybody go out and buy Jeff's book. Bye bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, 
a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.